Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Why have gas prices dropped in Canada and how long is it going to last? We'll give you some answers to that. And we cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini's weekly Washington report. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, there is a by-election, federal by-election today in uh, the greater Toronto area, actually. It's in the uh, Mississauga Lakeshore riding. Uh, and, uh, well, not a whole lot of attention being paid to it right now, which is rather interesting. Emily Javesky has some details for us. Running for the Liberals is Charles Souza, a former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister who represented Mississauga South in the provincial legislature. Ron Schinzer, a police officer in the area, is the Tory candidate, and party insiders are keeping expectations of winning low. Still, political strategist Shakir Chamber says one takeaway for Poiliev might be about his approach to spreading his message. While he enjoys a more unified caucus than the party's previous two leaders, Poiliev has been delivering his message on inflation and crime largely through social media and speaking to select media outlets rather than the larger national media. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press, Toronto. So what's going on there? And uh, to talk about that and a number of other uh, federal issues. So please do welcome back to the program, Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Let me ask you about your read on what's going on with the by-election right now. As we say, the, usually these things don't get a whole lot of attention. Uh, voter turnout's usually pretty low. But there's not a whole lot of talk about this. I mean, you know, it's not going to change the balance of power at all. But I mean, my understanding is Polyev hasn't even showed up during this whole thing to, to try to lend a hand to his candidate. That's unusual, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, usually like political parties will really jump at the chance to engage on a by-election because it's an opportunity. Again, like it's, you're flipping a seat. It's whether you really need the seat or not. It's a good momentum for a piece for a party that is looking to you know, kind of draw some attention to itself, especially I think for Polyev at this point, given that he, you know, his, he just became the leader in September to the, if the conservative candidate won, it would see, be seen as a kind of endorsement for him. Like sometimes people treat by-elections as a kind of referendum on what's going on in the whole mm -hmm. political context. But I don't know necessarily that voters always think of it that way, right? Like voter turnout and by-elections tends to be low. People are, you know, probably voting on the, on the basis of the things that they usually vote for. They're, the voters in the riding may not treat it as a referendum, right? But this one's got a whole bunch of candidates and it's, you know, so we'll see what happens at the end of the night. Well, and your point's well taken. I mean, you tend to think, okay, yeah, there's a liberal, there's a conservative, and there's an NDPer, uh, but there's a Green Party. I think there's something like 30 people registered. A number of them are independents, of course, uh, which is may, may may actually muddy the waters, I guess, to a certain extent. Uh, but is, is this something that the conservatives were hoping to see at some point, almost a referendum on Polyev to say, see, people really love this guy? I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing, right, for them to see a kind of endorsement, because there's a sense that even though, again, it's it's not a straight referendum on the leader, there's a sense that it's some indication of whether the leader has momentum. And so they might, you know, that if, if it goes conservative, I think they'll be, you know, really pleased and will take it as a vote in favor of Polyev's leadership and a sign that that was the right choice and that, that sort of thing. But again, I mean... At this point, especially kind of getting into the holiday season, I'm wondering what voter turnout is going to be. And as you say, there's so many candidates. And if the vote is split among all those people, 
you know, it, 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 <laughs> there might be, you know, all kinds of tiny little pockets of support, but yet, uh, you know, somebody's got to come first and that's all that matters. Well, exactly. Things. But Polyev's kind of laying low these days anyway. I mean, you know, with the, the Alberta situation and, and the, the sovereignty act that's being put out there, I mean, Quebec's making some changes right now, uh, about English language again, that's not new for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, he just doesn't seem to want to get in front of a microphone and be asked about any of this stuff. Yeah, and I think it's like people have commented on his seeming, you know, allergy to talking to the mainstream media. He calls it legacy media. He's trying to, I think, build his own rapport directly with people. So he's not going through, uh, you know, the kind of national media channels and that sort of thing. He's making his own videos. He's making his own clips and send them out, sending them out directly as a way to kind of really package his own message and bring it directly to voters without that that person in the middle or that 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 medium i mean i don't know how that's gonna pay out for like play out for him eventually like it's on some level maybe he doesn't need the national media that's might that might be what he's thinking that he's got enough following in his own social media there's enough people making a fuss about him that he doesn't need to rely on his message being carried by other people but yet i think you know especially around election time a lot of people focus in on, you know, what they're watching the news, they're reading the paper, they're doing that traditional thing. Is he at some point going to bring it around to a more, uh, you know, kind of back and forth in a more regular way with the media? But is he, by doing that, as you say, relying so heavily on social media, is he just really just preaching to the converted there? Is 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 that really a way to broaden your audience? I mean, you know, he's going to have to get more than, you know, rock solid conservatives to vote for him if he wants to form a government. You got it. And that's a great question. Like, I, I wonder if what he's doing is he's got some ideas about expanding his his vote on the right side of the political spectrum. He wants to get back the votes that uh, the conservatives think they lost to the PPC and Maxime Bernier. And there were a number of conservative candidates, even ones who were successful in the 2021 election, who really were concerned about having some of their votes shaved off to a party that was offering more of a right-wing message. So it's possible that, again, as you say, preaching to the choir, he is, but he's trying to build the size of that choir. He's trying to, you know, kind of get at some voters who maybe don't usually vote conservative, maybe don't usually vote at all, but yet they are in that spectrum of the kind of right-wing side of the of the ideological spectrum. Now, once it gets to an election time where people are more like their their minds are more attuned to who they're going to vote for, Polyev is going to have to campaign differently if he wants to grow among, you know, people who maybe are tired of the liberal vote and they're looking for some, somewhere else to park their vote. I think he's possibly got a lot of hay to be made from a palpable sense of voter fatigue with uh, Justin Trudeau and the liberals in, in the sense that if he plays his cards right and he looks like a credible alternative, that might be enough to attract a lot of attention from swing voters who are just looking to do something different. Meanwhile, uh, back in Ottawa, as they say, uh, the prime minister's got his hands full these days. We mentioned just a couple of seconds ago, but of course, this the, the Sovereignty Act and uh, you know, what's happening in Alberta right now. Uh, the Quebec legislature now is, uh, is, is starting to mess around with uh, what some people consider to be constitutional items. Uh, there has always been a fear that nobody wants to open the Constitution because that's really a Pandora's box. But a, a number of the premiers seem to think it's a pretty good idea right now. Uh, how's the prime minister going to respond to this? He has made it a point of doing the sort of bilateral style interactions with the provinces, with the the premiers, where he doesn't want to sit down with them all at once. He wants to take them one at a time and create versions of the same deal with everyone, whether it's in childcare or dental care or whatever. 
I think what's happening now is the premiers are growing kind of tired of that. They're seeing some strength in maybe like kind of putting more pressure on the federal government to be responsive to what they want. And I also think we're seeing some of the issues that have been percolating and bubbling for a while in Canadian federalism that haven't been solved are starting to rise to the surface and they're harder for the federal government to contain. So something like, you know, a really uh, strong sense of Western alienation and autonomy in Alberta, you know, on the one hand, maybe the federal government, when it's liberal, they choose to kind of ignore that because they can form a government without Alberta. So they take it for granted. Whereas, you know, like you get you let that boil to a certain point and you got a problem. And so couple that with, um, you know, clearly what are our autonomous leanings in Saskatchewan and a desire for state building there, even the creation of their own revenue agency and what we can always see as a, as a, a sovereignty push in Quebec for more independence in that province. It seems to be very difficult for the government to keep all these things at once. But like, if we can imagine opening up the constitution again, I think a lot of people would be sort of stressed about that in some ways, because it's like you open it up, it's a Pandora's box. Who the heck knows how we're going to solve all this. On the other hand, if we act like it's a completely shut box and we can't do anything to change the constitution, no matter what, that is an immature country. That is not a country that can grow properly, right? Like we need to be able to have those conversations. So maybe we're seeing, you know, especially if people like Andrew Coyne pick up on the argument and start to push Chantelle Bear, you know, maybe we'll see a little bit more of a, of a public conversation around like, let's sit down and ha hammer this out, but who knows where that'll go. Well, we can tell from history, it did not go well the last couple of times they tried this one. Brian Mulroney tried to, to get some consensus here. You know, Meech Lake and, and Charlottetown, people can Google both of those. And uh, it got pretty ugly. There was blood on the floor when they finished this thing. And then, of course, Pierre Trudeau got back into the act uh, with his version of what went on, too. So do they really want to do that right now? Because it, it's 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 a rather acrimonious exercise to to figure that you're going to get consensus, even among the premiers, really. Oh, 100%. And that's the thing, right? If you if you grant something for someone, and you've got to get the rest of them to agree to it, whether the amending formula is the 7 of 10 or the 10 of 10, depending on what it is, you know, as soon as you make one trade off, it's like, well, you got to make another trade off for somebody else. And pretty soon, you're just kind of chasing things and nothing's getting solved. And people aren't going to agree unless they've all got somebody's got something. So the question is, can you make a deal that everybody can get something out of? But I mean, at this point, and I think this alludes to you to your comments, these guys don't have a whole lot of capital left. Like this is maybe not the moment for Justin Trudeau to be having these difficult conversations. On the one hand, you can see how a government at the end of its tenure, and I'm, I realize I'm making a lot of assumptions there, but a seven, eight year old government who's thinking maybe we won't get reelected, that might be the time to shoot the wad and say, all right, like let's, let's do this difficult thing because screw it, we're probably not going to get voted in again anyway. On the other hand, it's probably easier to do these things when you've got a lot of capital in the bank. So thinking back to, you know, how Brian Mulroney went about these things, for example, but he still didn't get a win out of it. So what political unicorn can fix this? I'm not sure. Well, and uh, it's, it's interesting how this all ties back in together, because, I mean, one of the offshoots of those uh, constitutional debates uh, that happened back in the 80s and 90s was the now famous uh, notwithstanding clause that uh, Doug Ford seems to have embraced uh, heartily. Uh, and that was the that was the thing that actually got the deal made in situations like that. So you got to lay everything on the table for these things, don't you? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, everybody's got their own agenda, like in it and not just a, a clear policy one. You know, it's it's also like everyone's got a political agenda. Different premiers are going to want to build support in their own provinces for different reasons. And so we'll see them flex their muscles and, and show that they're responsive to what they think people want, even if they're not going to get action. And if they don't, they can blame it on the feds. That's how federalism works. Well, and, you know, that's one of the other, you know, storm clouds on the horizon here. I mean, healthcare. there's so many other things. But, of course, uh, everybody's looking for, I, I guess, their own piece of the pie here uh, and, and looking, I guess, for other forms of government right now, too. I mean, they, they all want to be independent. I mean, they just, you know, they want the federal government to just give us the check and let us do what we want with it. Uh, and I, I can't see the prime minister giving into something like that. Well, that's it. And at a time where they are trying to show fiscal restraint, they're trying to show that they, um, and, and some people will, as soon as I say that, right, a lot of people will disagree and say, no, they're not, right? <laughs> they're still, they're trying to say they're do, doing things in a fiscally restrained way, but they're really not. But I think they're at least trying to give the appearance that um, this is not the time to spend a whole bunch of money, which might make it more difficult to get the provinces around the table in a way that makes them happy, because you're not going to be able to write a check for everybody. And people are going to be like, what the hell, right? Like we've been talking about how we have to manage the inflation crisis. And, you you know, what what are you doing flooding the system again? So, yeah, it's a, it is a tough time to be Justin Trudeau, I think. Well, and just to use that classic line from the movie When Harry Met Sally, you know, the other provinces are looking at Quebec and said, we'll have what they're having. Uh, and that, <laughs> and that's not going to happen either, is it? Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing about being Quebec. <laughs> Laurie, as always, thank you so much for this. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Take care. Thank you. You too. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. How about a little good news? Well, the concerns about health care and what's going on politically in Ottawa and in Toronto. Uh, filled up the gas tank recently. Yeah, the prices have gone down, way down from where they were uh, just a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago. It was just skyrocketing, and now we seem to be in reverse, which is a good thing for consumers. So what's going on here, and how long is this uh, going to last? Well, let's bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, always a pleasure. Uh, pleasantly surprised. I saw the price. It was actually, I saw 128 uh, on the weekend at uh, one of the Pioneer stores, uh, gas stations here. I, and I had a full tank of gas. I felt like driving around for a while just to get, you know, make a little room in the tank so I could take advantage of this. But uh, Why are we uh, the, the recipients of such a, a wonderful bonanza right now when it comes to gas prices? Right. You old bargain hunter, you, Bill. Drive yeah. around just to buy more. <laughs> That's not good for the carbon footprint. Um, oh, yeah, that, so yeah. Yeah, that thing. You remember that thing? So uh, let me tell you, I can actually beat you. I bought gasoline at $1.24.9 here not that long ago. So why wow. is it so low? Well, oil is the major driver of gasoline prices. And oil has been on a roller coaster ride. That's the only way to describe it. Just a month ago, just a month ago, oil was trading at around $90 a barrel. Today, it's trading around $70 a barrel. Mind you, Three months ago, it was trading at around $70 a barrel. So that's what I mean by a roller coaster ride. It comes down, and then it goes up, and then it comes down. Now, there are some general forces at play. One, we don't drive as much during the winter as we do in the summer. Therefore, demand has fallen. Number two, supply is up. Uh, because we're not buying as much, oil companies keep producing at kind of the same rate. The supply is up. Number three, we just saw Europe. Uh, put a lid, an absolute maximum price, on Russian oil at $60 a barrel. Well, now that gets kind of interesting. Does, does that mean that's what the world price should be? So we've seen a reaction to Europe's move 
in general to see oil prices fall a bit. And then there's just the general concern around the recession that could happen in 2023. So that's caused people to be a little less optimistic about futures in the oil market. In other words, if I want to buy a barrel a month from now or three months from now, those futures have declined as well. Now, does this mean this is the new normal? I wouldn't bet on that at all because of this volatile ride that we're on. I would just tell you, enjoy it while you can. Take advantage of these low prices when you can. But I'm not betting on where it's going to be in February or March of next year. But how does a, a situation like this actually occur? Because as you and I have talked about in the past, uh, our, our buddies in the in this industry, uh, OPEC among them, uh, have kind of controlled the price before. I mean, as you saw, you know, if the price starts to go down, they simply cut production to, so, and to increase demand for it, which, of course, keeps the price up there where it was. Uh, why didn't that happen this time? Well, actually, it did. So if I just take you back again to late October, early November, we saw low prices in at that time at the end of October, and OPEC responded by cutting oil production by, I believe it was 2 million barrels a day. Uh, if demand is constant, but supply goes down, guess what happens? The prices go up. And that's what happened in November. We saw oil prices go back up for a while there. A good a good price for a liter of gasoline was $1.60 a liter, $1.65 a liter. And we went, oh, well, you know, we're not in charge OPEC. But somehow, somehow, again, our demand has fallen so much. We're just not driving around as much that even with that oil production cutback, we've seen the prices fall. Now, to your point, uh, nothing would stop OPEC tomorrow or next week or the week after that saying, you know, we don't like world oil prices at $70 a barrel, so we're going to cut production again. Now, there are political forces at play. Uh, President Biden, leaders out of Europe are trying to meet with the with the various oil producing nations and saying, leave it where it is, don't do this. But look, they're motivated by greed. If I have a resource, I want to get the most for it. So I won't be shocked if in the next month or, or excuse me, week or two, we hear about OPEC cutting production again. But for the moment, we've got this wonderful situation where the volume being produced is enough to drive the prices down because our demand has fallen. What about, uh, how's this playing in Europe right now? Because that was always a concern. As you mentioned, the, the Russian uh, supply was, was in question because of what's going on with their war in Ukraine. Uh, and that was uh, something that they were concerned about. Now, I know home, the, the home heating fuel and gas is part of this, natural gas. But at the yep. same time, I know that Germany and France in particular uh, were very concerned about that. Are, are they are they hanging in there? Yeah, well, concern. So so first, let's say that Europe, Europe, the European Union had a meeting and they agreed that all the nations in Europe agreed that the most they would pay for Russian oil was $60 a barrel. Okay, that's great news. So Russia, you keep producing at the level you were but we're only going to pay you a maximum of $60 a barrel. You can guess that Mr. Putin then said, wait a minute, guys, if the world price of oil is $70 a barrel, why would I want to keep producing at that level? So he has threatened, threatened only at this point, to reduce the supply or even cut off the supply to Europe. So this is a game of high-stakes chicken that we're seeing played here. He, he needs to sell oil because that's the money that he's using to finance his war with Ukraine. So... Even at $60 a barrel, some revenue coming in is better than no revenue at all. And I don't know. I can't guess again with Mr. Putin which way he's going to act. Uh, there are nice countries that have not chosen to boycott Russia. One of them comes to mind is China, 
that has said, well, if you're wanting to sell your oil, we'd be interested in buying it. And so will Mr. Putin cut off Europe, switch to other nations in the world, India, China, as examples that would be happy to buy the oil? We just don't know. But for the moment, he continues to sell oil at the volumes he's been selling it, only getting the maximum of $60 a barrel. And everything seems to be fine. But look, uh, if I'm, whether I'm Germany or France or England or Italy, any nation in Europe, this could be, could be a difficult winter for heating homes. They are looking at other sources of supply. You probably know that as environmentally friendly as they were, they have reopened coal-fired electricity generating stations to make sure they have enough electricity this winter. So, you know, anyone's guess, this, this still remains a very volatile situation. And, and you know, historically we've seen this, so, and your point's well taken, more often in, in the summer than in the wintertime. But, you know, Christmas, the holiday season, uh, is usually a time where, you know, we maybe do a little more traveling than we might in, in other winter months uh, to yep. see family and friends. Are, are we still skittish about that because of COVID and, and that may not happen this year? Uh, COVID, among other things. So, as you know, we're not we're still in a pandemic. It's not been declared over. We, we know that our our children's hospitals are all bursting at the scene with sick children, whether it is COVID or flu or, or some other sorts of thing that way. Um, we're already hearing about mask mandates, rumors of mask mandates coming back, what have you. So it makes you wonder, uh, in my own family, I have family members who uh, are immunocompromised that uh, getting something like COVID could be deadly for them. And so as we are doing our Christmas planning, we're asking them, do you feel comfortable coming out? And if not, no pressure. Let's, let's not put any pressure on you. So we're not sure, but we do believe at least so far the data is showing that spending-wise, this is going to be a good Christmas. I know there were lots and lots of stories about how this was going to be a tough Christmas, but what we've seen coming out of the United States are people spending money the way they have in past years. This could even be a record even higher than it was in 2019. So while, while our individual travel plans may still be affected by COVID, at least our spending hasn't. And I, I think in that sense, it's going to be good for the economy. How long that will continue, we always have a headache in January when those credit card bills come in and we mm -hmm. see our spending drop off January, February. Then the question comes when we get into March and April, will we be bouncing back or are we going to be seeing the effects of a recession? And no one is quite sure at this point. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. As always, Marvin, thanks for this. Really appreciate it today. Glad to be with you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very tense times in Washington uh, with the well the year end coming up pretty quickly, of course, which also uh, will signal the end of the uh, mandate, I suppose, for the January 6th committee uh, that has been investigating the events of that day and, of course, the, the reasons behind that. And uh, to get some insight into this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, uh, thank you so much for the time today. I, I, I can say a, a, an awful lot going on in the Capitol, but uh, the the uh, interest and the anticipation about the January 6th results and that, that report that's coming from that committee uh, is something that's been front of center for an awful lot of people. I've seen a number of the people on the committee on, on some of the Sunday morning political shows or MSNBC and, and CNN. They're very tight-lipped about this, but 
Uh, it seems I'm that this a little bit of the information that that report is starting to leak out. What are you hearing, Reggie? Yeah, I mean you're you're right in that they're being tight-lipped, but I think what's also remarkable about this bill is that this committee has been tight-lipped essentially since they began their public hearings uh, just before the summer uh, in June. Very little has actually come out of the Capitol with the exception of what we are you know visually seeing in some of the hearings or actually hearing from people uh beyond that but some of the leaks right now show that there could be a potential direction here uh especially when it comes to what is ultimately going to be the most latched onto part of this report and that is going to be the criminal referrals they are not saying who will be uh, a part of that but there is a significant kind of uh, uh directional focus to the former president and that is obviously going to carry some of the biggest pieces of weight here but you know as a whole the simple fact that this uh report is going to detail uh what those hearings put out uh with the, with those uh with the hearings that were carried along with an attempt to try and ensure that a January 6th event never happens again. This is going to be a remarkable feat to have, you know, accomplished in just under a two-year period. You know, the other report that comes to mind, uh, you know, uh, again, had great anticipation was the Mueller report about what was going on uh, with that election. And uh, there was a great deal of, 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 I guess, incredulous reaction to that because those that read the report realized that, you know, Mueller could have, you know, insinuated, you know, who was involved, didn't recommend uh, whether there was any illegality, et cetera. Uh, I'm getting the sense from your reporting, uh, Reggie, over the last couple of weeks, uh, that's not going to be the case here. They're, they're going to name names and point fingers, aren't they? Yeah. And I think to go back to what the Mueller report did, we have to remember that this was focused on actions that were carried out at the time by a sitting president. And there is longstanding policy to not indict a sitting president. And I think that is what kind of um, hung heavily over what work Robert Mueller was doing. And it oftentimes became kind of a sticking point for Democrats who said, well, look, Donald Trump was accused of potentially doing wrongdoing, but nothing happened to him. Again, with Mueller relying on on the DOJ, Donald Trump is not a sitting president anymore. He was at the time that January 6th happened, but he is now simply a private citizen. And that is why there could be names named. And I mean, look, there are already people who uh, did not testify, who are facing potential jail time, including uh, Steve Bannon, who's kind of fighting that sentence that he was given uh, earlier in the year. So this is going to be a heavy hitting and potentially impactful report. But I think you know, we have to kind of look beyond the scope of what those eight chapters were of, you know, the the efforts to overturn the election and the summoning of supporters to Washington. Uh, what we're kind of hearing about this report is that it's going to be broad. It's going to capture aspects of the committee's investigation that may have been caught up in the weeds that may also point into different directions. And ultimately, what this report will do if and when and, you know, after it lands in the hands of members of the Department of Justice, they will then be able to, you know, steamroll forward with, you know, continuing their own or potentially opening new investigations because, you know, Congress is coming to an end. This here, this committee is coming to an end. The Department of Justice is not coming to an end and they will be able to go forward despite the political noise that might be happening on the Hill. Uh, can we anticipate, Reggie, that, uh, that with these recommendations, and you know, I'm assuming as you are that Trump is going to be mentioned in there in one way, shape, or form, but they are only recommendations. Can the DOG uh, simply you know, say thanks for this, and you know, and we'll put that on the desk. We don't want to pursue this right now. Do you get the feeling that, that this is an action item that they're going to have to respond to? 
Well, I mean, look, the Department of Justice will face criticism if it takes at referrals, if it takes a recommendation from the Capitol and decides to kind of put it to the side and, you know, we'll quote unquote deal with it when we get to it. There will be pushback, probably not from the White House. It's trying to distance itself from the DOJ, but it will face pushback from Democrats and from people within the base who argue that if Donald Trump or somebody close to the former president is not held accountable or at least actively investigated by the DOJ, that this uh, could be a a kind of, you know, call that, look, you can do something and it can be, you know, uh, viciously bad. Uh, and and there will be no consequences for it. I think the Department of Justice is walking a very fine line right now as to how it intends to move forward. We know Merrick Garland is not somebody who is just going to jump into the deep end. He is going to do a slow walk from the steps of the shallow end. Uh, and he whatever decision he ultimately ends up moving forward with, along with the special counsel that has been tasked to also look at this information, uh, they are going to do it methodically. They are not just going to rush into it. But, you know, from some of the leaks that have been put out there already, uh, there are people within the Trump orbit that may be nervous. To that point, as you mentioned, there's going to be the recommendations, but there's also going to be an awful lot of information. A lot of the testimony, uh, Reggie, of course, was done behind closed doors, and we don't know what some of those people actually said. The committee only let us see what they wanted us to see when they had the public hearings and televised those hearings, some of them anyway. But is there going to be some stand of information to support those recommendations? Because one of the accusations that especially some of the Republicans have made uh, openly is that, look, it's all, this is all second and third hand information. You know, this is I heard somebody or somebody told me that this is what they said, uh, which may not hold up in, in, you know, in, a, in, a, in a more thorough investigation, I guess. Do they feel that they have the substance here to actually pursue these charges if, in fact, that's what they're going to recommend? I think it's possible. Uh, I think we have to remember that the DOJ is also carrying out concurrent investigations along with what um, counterparts on Capitol Hill uh, are doing as well. This is not going to be just kind of the very beginnings of an investigation into what took place on January 6th. There have been, you know, hundreds of people charged and already uh, 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 convicted of things like seditious conspiracy. So the DOJ is already moving forward with this. Uh, and, you know, we don't know if DOJ is actively investigating, you know, people who may have been a part of this hearing as well. What took place behind closed doors, that information will go into the report. And that is the first time, uh, according to at least uh, uh, committee officials, that the DOJ will get that information. Department of Justice officials will get the closed door information at the same time the public gets the information when the report is put out there. Committee faced a bit of criticism for that as well, saying, why weren't you, you know, communicating back and forth? But they were trying to ensure kind of a separation of government here that Congress and, 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 um, and judiciary weren't acting kind of with each other. But when this comes out next Thursday, it is going to be impactful and all eyes will shift from what took place at the Capitol and within the Capitol for the last six months to the, you know, the last year and a bit to what takes place at DOJ. This is not going to be something that, you know, goes in a snap, but but the focus is going to shift and everyone's question is, what is DOJ going to do? Exactly. Uh, lots of other stuff I want to focus on and jump in for a couple of seconds here. One of them was uh, a bit of a shocker, I guess, in some people's minds, was uh, uh, the decision announced last week from uh, Arizona Senator uh, Chris Sinema that uh, she was leaving the Democratic Party uh, just after, of course, uh, the, the re-election and, and the fact that the, the Democrats were able to hold on to the Senate anyway. Uh, what does this do to the numbers now, Reggie, and, and the power structure within the Senate? Well, I mean, look, at the end of the day, she decided to leave the Democratic Party, but she did not join the Republican Party. So there is a kind of, you know, framework here that the independence in the Senate, at least right now, 
that they caucus with and vote with the Democrats. So there is still a real possibility here that Democrats keep a 51-49 majority. But, you know, there are questions as to, you know, how much she's actually going to vote with Democrats because Kirsten Sinema is somebody who actively kind of worked to unravel a lot of the work that the Democratic Party was trying to put forward to uh, pass in the Senate. Uh, and, and oftentimes, you know, she, both she and Joe Manchin would stand in the way of things with that win by uh, 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 Raphael Warnock in Georgia. That gives a bit of breathing room for Democrats now. But Cinema's decision to go independent is being criticized, including by other independents, namely Bernie Sanders, who says that she has already worked to undermine the Democratic Party. And he just believes that political aspirations might be behind this. You know, Cinema's decision obviously facing criticism widely from within the party, but also, uh, you know, the party looking forward saying, well, look, if this is her decision, maybe we just primary her in 2024 and try to remove her. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's a decision that many were surprised by, but others simply said, well, look, she barely worked with the Democrats as is, you know, kind of let her do what she needs to do now. So that's a, an avenue open. I mean, as you say in politics, Reggie, this, for every action, there's a reaction. Uh, the Democrats are going to have. Uh, uh, there's got to be a payback, uh, you know, process in place here to, to make sure that uh, you know they don't want her to run as an independent for re-election when when her time comes up again. Uh, and you know th- th- that's one of the ways. I mean, independence. Bernie Sanders is really the exception to the rule here, who seems to survive and thrive as an independent. But he sits with the Democratic caucus, doesn't he? He does. Uh, and, and you know, because of that, he has built up a strong base within the Democratic Party and within the Democratic base. Kirsten Sinema, you know, at one time uh, was very far left leaning within the Democratic Party and has kind of slowly morphed towards this kind of center and, and oftentimes feeling center right. And she's been accused of being too close and cozied up with uh, with uh, uh, special interests and with corporate money that has kind of bankrolled much of her campaigns and much of her kind of focus, especially when it comes uh, to things having to do with pharmaceuticals. Uh, but this decision to go independent, you know, there are some concerns that this could stand in the way of Democrats, uh, especially if somebody's unable to be, uh, you know, in the chamber for a vote. Does she vote with them? Do they have to try and whip a little more to get her in line? It also raises questions, though, Bill, does someone like Joe Manchin decide, well, maybe I need to step away from the Democratic Party uh, to put, you know, a more independent focus on West Virginia? What does this do for uh, Senator Tester out of Montana, who also will face re-election in 2024? Does he find himself now facing uh, what could be a stiff, you know, pushback uh, because he is in a ruby red state and oftentimes, you know, works well with Democrats, but also has his own state to look out for. This this could unravel a bit of work that Democrats have been doing, and they now have a lot of work to do over the next exactly. Years. We'll be watching that story, of course, and you're reporting on that. But I guess uh, the more imminent uh, dealings right now are going to have to do with budgets. And <laughs> and as you've been reporting, government funding could run out this coming Friday. This is a little game that Congress plays with presidents from time to time, but it's it's very serious. And the implications of if this were to happen could be very, very serious. Absolutely, they could. Back in 2018, the government shut down for 35 days, uh, and and it cost you know billions upon billions and billions of dollars uh, to the economy. Uh, the Democrats and Republicans right now, top line spending can't uh, be found with middle compromise here, and they're about 26 billion dollars away from each other in non defense spending. It's a drop in the bucket compared to the 1.5 trillion dollar budget overall. But just that number of 26 billion means that they need to do work longer. They may have to postpone their recess and they may have to try and put forward some kind of stopgap measure, because if they don't get this figured out by the end of the week and they can't pass some quick, you know, continuing resolution, 
the U.S. government is going to go into shutdown. And there is a fear that even a stopgap measure will then run into resistance from Republicans in the House by the time the new Congress comes into place because they don't want to see things like funding for the IRS and they don't want to see things like funding uh, for for social programs like uh, like Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, So without kind of uh, cooperation from both parties here, especially by week's end, there's going to be a real cloud hanging over the brand new Congress and Republicans could find themselves taking power at a at a moment when the U.S. government runs out of money and shuts down. So who who's going to be making the deal here? I mean, you know, we remember during the Trump administration, of course, the shutdown there and and Pelosi and, and, and Chuck Schumer and others were basically living in the White House. They seem to have meetings there almost every day or every hour. Uh, Nancy Pelosi's gone. Uh, well, technically gone anyway. Uh, are the Democrats leaderless in, in Congress right now? Is there somebody that can take the bull by the horns here and try to get this deal done? Well, I mean, look, they're, they're trying. Uh, it'll be easier to pass this in the House because you simply need uh, a simple majority. But the mm-hmm. problem is the Senate. They need 60 votes in order to pass this through. And Republicans don't seem to be in line with where Democrats are in the Senate. And that is where this could stall out. Chuck Schumer is aiming to get something done here. Even Mitch McConnell has signaled that he doesn't want to see the government shut down, but he's facing resistance from Republicans in the House who are telling him, don't cave into the Democrats, don't give them what they want. So you're now seeing kind of intra-party fighting over how to keep the government funded. But ultimately, if the House passes something and the Senate doesn't, Democrats can't do it with a simple majority. uh, And this will end up costing potentially uh, Republicans uh, because, you know, a shutdown, sure, it lasts or it comes, it goes, but then it can come back into the picture again by election time. Uh, And if there are Republicans responsible for keeping the government closed, that could hinder their ability to rewin an election. So there's a lot riding financially and politically on what happens with this budget. Final question for you, and I know your time is tight, but uh, uh, let's circle back to Trump if we could. And you mentioned the results in Georgia from last week and and, uh, the importance of that that win for the Democrats. Where is that point, Reggie, where the the Republicans, even some of the staunch ones, the Ted Cruz's and others, will simply say, look, Donald Trump is now a liability. Uh, He's not the guy anymore. Because I, I, I get the sense that there's still some hangers on there that just can't seem to let go and still think that he is the power broker within that party. I, it's hard to see if Republicans are actually going to be able to find compromise to move forward in that way. The Senate may have understood, look, Trump can be a liability. Look at what he cost us when it came to potentially gaining our majority back. But the Trump wing is still very strong, especially in the House of Representatives, where that right-leaning block could potentially have sway over what the House does. And I think that you're going to find um, kind of almost Republican gridlock over the next couple of years as how they go forward with dealing uh, with the former president. Will he be a nominee? Will he be fully backed by all members? Uh, the House is gearing towards keeping him, you know, front and, and center. That's going to face pushback from, you know, some of the more moderate members of the Republican Party. And Donald Trump is somebody who's been backed into a corner. He's been able to fight his way out. He seems to be backed into a corner again and losing some of his support. The, the question is, will Republican support for going against Donald Trump lead to, you know, the eventual removal of Trump, or will that lead to pushback from Trump and these people's political lives, you know, find themselves on the line? He still holds a lot of power and sway. Uh, very tight times in Washington these days. And of course, we'll be watching for your reporting on Global National this week. Reggie, thanks for this today. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, of course, is a global sky uh, down in the U.S. Capitol. And uh, as to say, a lot of the stuff we just talked about here may well hinge on the results of that January 6th committee report, which will be coming out 
uh, and possibility of charges. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.